Bonjour. I'm Terrence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terrence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. My, my guest today on the line from Washington is Will Haygood. It's Will with a single L and is the biographer of Thurgood Marshall, Sugar Ray Robinson, Sammy Davis Jr., Adam Clayton Powell Jr., and the book that I wish I had read before this conversation, The Haygoods of uh, Columbus. In my, the back of my head, I, I see the Underground Railroad. Maybe I'm wrong. And, and, and his latest book is called Colorization, uh, which is not the uh, Ted Turner process of uh, colorizing movies like Casablanca, but the fact that for 100 years, black films have existed in a white world. But I must say, uh, it's almost a deceptive uh, title because as I read the book, there's so much history, uh, interracial history and parallel uh, black and white history that it could very much be a, a history of America in the last 100 years. So uh, congratulations on that effort. Thank you very, very much. It's great to be here, too. Yeah, it, it's terrific to talk to you. I, I, I did read Sammy Davis, so I'm not completely illiterate on, on your work. Uh, but let's, let's begin. Uh, there are three personalities that are involved, and one, I guess, is perhaps a surprise to people. The 1915 film, uh, Birth of a Nation, directed by D.W. Griffith, written by Thomas Dixon as the Klansman. And uh, Mr. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, the man of peace, was no friend to the black man. Talk about that film and uh, why you use that as a launching point for your book. Yes. Um, it was a film that really attacked in savage in the African-American community coast to coast. Um, it was based on a novel, as you said, written by Thomas Dixon, that was a Southern uh, revenge novel. Uh, Post-Reconstruction. Yes, exactly. One of these lost cause novels. And so it got turned into a film and that premiered in 1915. Uh, and the heroes of this movie were none other than the Ku Klux Klan. The villains were all black people. And so here's cinema, which is still fairly new. So just think if you were someone who walked outside of your house and you saw a car for the first time and you got inside of that car, well, that was going to be a pretty amazing sensation, something you would remember for the rest of your life. Many people had went to see this movie, and it was their first epic spectacle that they had seen on the big screen. And it was their introduction, cinema-wise, to Black people. And so you had this movie that stayed on the screen for four years, and that had premiered at the White House with Woodrow Wilson watching it. Mm -hmm. because he was a friend of the author of the novel. And so 
for four years, this movie, it was like a big TV commercial savaging black people. And it caused uprising, it caused protests, it caused lawsuits, it caused a debate about censorship in this country. Uh, and so I thought to understand the 100-year epic stretch of Blacks in their effort to become a main player in cinema, that it was smart to start the book that way. When did you first see that film, or did you see that film? Yes, I saw the whole film. I mean, and I had seen snatches of it here and there, but I saw the, the film actually uh, when I started working on this book. And it just so happens, Terrence, that I was sitting in my study in 2017 in my home in Washington, D.C., when the Charlottesville oh, uprising happened. So that was 102 years after, after this KKK movie had taken the nation by storm. And so here I am just starting work on this particular book, and that is happening uh, near me. I'm in Washington, D.C., and, and Charlottesville, of course, is not that far. And it really broke my heart as I started this book. It also told me that it was very important to work on this book. You know, the, that being said, I, 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 I didn't sense or a lot of rancor in, in your writing. You seem to be quite objective uh, about all of these horrible things that are happening. Uh, you told the story, certainly you didn't pull any punches on it, but it, uh, that would have been a, an episode that may have uh, propelled some, someone else to write a, uh, a nasty book. And uh, that's what I got out of this. Yeah. Uh, you are actually about the fifth person who has said this to me, that um, in its own way, the book is... Uh, and it shows my love for film, mm -hmm. for for cinema. And I and I said to myself, if I followed the facts, wrote about the facts, and wrote about the history of this country, using black cinema kind of as a spokeswheel, then you see heroes, black heroes, and heroes who are white the men and women who helped people like Sidney Poitier and Sammy Davis Jr. and mm -hmm. Harry Belafonte and Eartha Kitt. Uh, there, are, there are heroes threaded throughout this book. Um, and yet, yet, if you walk, Terrence, 50 feet from the front door of a movie theater, if you had done that in the 30s, mm -hmm. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you would find a great drama that infuses the telling of the story of this country. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. I, I thought that if I, with my newspaper background, 
I thought that if I told a story objectively as possible, that it was bound to be a very powerful. Uh, well, I, I think you've I think you've achieved that, and I hope that I hope that the sales reflect it because uh, it, it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful book. Uh, I'm a bit of an historian, and uh, much of this uh, appealed to me. Uh, jump a little bit forward. Uh, uh, I mean, now we invoke the Homestead Act. We get back to the non-black part of the black part of the book, and Oscar yes. Michaud. Uh, yes. Talk about the Homestead Act for those because I don't know what. It, what children are being uh, taught in school today, if anything. And uh, talk about the Homestead Act and uh, who was Oscar Michaud. Yes, the Homestead Act was something that was passed by a, a Abraham Lincoln in 1863. Uh, goodness, the same year that he freed most of the slaves uh, in this country, in the South. And, and so he came up with an idea uh, for the Homestead Act, which meant that if you went out west and you became a pioneer and you settled land and you farmed land, after a certain number of years, that land would be yours. It was an effort. Uh, it was an effort to settle the so-called wild, wild west. So here was a young black man born in the Midwest by the name of Oscar Michaud. He had had some family members who preceded him out West and partook in the Homestead Act. So he goes to South Dakota. Uh, he starts farming. He's fairly successful. Then he suffers some setbacks because of drought, etc. Uh, and in the evenings, he grows bored and he starts writing uh, novels and short stories. And he, he knows about this epic, evil movie, The Birth of a Nation, that is still playing in many theaters across the country. And so he brings it upon himself uh, to counter that, he wants to make movies. And so he starts raising movies. I mean, he starts raising money to make movies, small movies at first, short, silent movies. And then uh, he establishes himself. He makes uh, more money and he starts making more films. And I mean, he was a, he was a true pioneer in the best sense of the word, he was a rare black homesteader and uh, he was a filmmaker. <laughs> I mean, he had a lot of courage and, and he became really the first major filmmaker black in this nation. Well, uh, at that point, we had, we had Jim Crow laws, Crow laws pretty much everywhere, except perhaps in the North where I was raised. Where yep. where were these films seen? Because we had obviously we had theaters where blacks were not permitted to enter. So I guess right. two, two thoughts. Number going back to Birth of a Nation, uh, how many black people actually had a chance to see what was triggering this horrible hostility towards them? 
And uh, where were they seeing uh, Michel's films? Yes, well, they were seeing his films in theaters and that welcome blacks, mostly in the North. Uh, uh, he would sometimes find a uh, colored social organization in small towns in the South that would show his films. Um, uh, now, as far as who saw The Birth of a Nation, a lot of it was through stories that uh, had been written about it. A lot of people got the essence of the film from lawsuits. Now, some Blacks, many Blacks did go see it, and they were so offended in that they got up and simply walked out. And so um, it was hard. It was very hard, Terrence, if you were Black in 1916 to sit quietly as this movie in that harmed you and was being played on the West Coast, the East Coast, the Midwest, and it was a huge epic hit down South. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a period of about five to six years where you could hardly go into a big city in this country and not see this movie. There were two things going on. The movie was a feat of genuine technical wizardry. Mm -hmm. Split screen, stop and go, freeze frames. There were, there were a lot of things going on on screen that folks- Technically brilliant. Yes, it was technically- Innovative. Innovative, yes, it really was. And people sat there in awe. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that it was a vile movie. It was very vulgar and very vile um, and extremely painful. A quarter of the U.S. population, one-fourth of the U.S. population had seen the birth of a nation by the end of 1919. So imagine, that's like one out of four people. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really astounding of what you had to deal with. Yeah, and demonstrates the enormous power of the medium at that point. Of cinema, extraordinary yes. power, absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, jump a little bit. Let's stay in the South and uh, Miss Miss Margaret Mitchell from uh, from Atlanta, in her yep. little book called "Gone with the Wind," uh, which yep. uh, I guess c continue to spread uh, a lot of stereotypes. Talk about about that film and a little bit about Hattie McDaniel. Yes, well, she had, and she had worked on her first novel for many, many years. She went to Smith College. She was upset when she went to Smith and she saw a fellow student who was black. Uh, she didn't think that there were, that there would be any black students at Smith College. Uh, she left. Now, we don't really know if she left because she saw that black student or because some members of her family uh, had become ill. And but be that as it may, she went back to her southern hometown and started writing. And she writes this novel, Gone with the Wind, about a southern family. 
and it becomes a sensation. Hollywood, of course, rushes in to snap up the rights, uh, and a film is made among its stars, you know, Clark Gable and Vivian Lee. If you were black, however, you would have been interested in who was going to play the role of Mammy. Mm-hmm. That was her name in the novel, in in the script, Mammy. That was the black maid. Hattie McDaniel got the role. She had been a vaudeville actress, and uh, and she played a lot of maid roles before she was cast in this film. And uh, so anyway, the movie's finished filming. Everybody in Hollywood is and excited about it. Uh, and uh, it also celebrates slavery. So Terrence, mm-hmm. think of this. In 1950, in 1915, and you have an anti-Black movie, and then 24 years later, 1939, you have another movie in that nearly celebrates slavery. So <laughs> in a period of less than three decades, you have the two biggest movies to come out of Hollywood are anti-Black movies. And that is that is so harmful. Interesting little point here. When uh, Going With the Wind had its premiere in Atlanta, Hattie McDaniel was not invited uh, uh, because of the city's strict segregation laws in the theaters. Clark Gable was upset by that and wanted her there, but she felt the tension and just stayed away. Uh, She did go to the L.A. showing, Uh, but at the premiere in Atlanta, there was a black choir that performed the night before the movie was shown. There was just a week-long celebration of events around the movie. This all-black choir had a little kid in it. <laughs> and that little kid, Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, it, 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 well, it's beyond amazing when you look at all these influences and how that would have influenced him and... Uh, you know, so many other people who are part of that experience. It's, it's yes. hard to comprehend. Yeah. The uh, And then when she won the Academy Award, the first African-American to win an Academy Award, uh, she was not invited to sit at the table with uh, the other stars at the uh, at the Academy Award celebration in, in Hollywood. Yes, you are exactly right. And uh, I don't know how to take that moment. She was sad, but it was also a very stereotypical role. Uh, it's not easy during, to be uh, to be a hero, uh, to step right. out and be that. Uh, you know, she's making a living at some some level. Uh, you know, it's hard to be that judgmental uh, from an, an anachronistic uh, you know perspective. Um, um, uh, it's good to hear that Clark had those feelings. I wish he he uh, he performed more like a king, but. Um, yeah, you know, the times. I know Leslie Howard was a good guy. I'm surprised that, uh, uh, but you know who who he can judge? 
But, but yeah, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, which I don't think you spent a great deal of time. There's a wonderful book on, on the Chicago Defender called The Defender. Yes. And, uh, what was the great, uh, uh, the Pittsburgh Courier, which I know from because of the uh, Pittsburgh Crawfords yep. and the Homestead Grays and the Negro yes. Leagues. But, but yep. these were a, a really vibrant uh, newspapers and extremely important to spread information uh, to the black community uh, nationwide. How are they covering these, these events? I guess in 1915, uh, really the Defenders just first beginning being born, I guess. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes. Um, and you are right. And these black newspapers helped make Hattie McDaniel. I mean, she wasn't really getting that much press in, in, the, in the mainstream press. And so any black stars... Uh, in the 40s and 50s really had to look to the black press uh, for ink and for storylines. Uh, and so there was a wonderful thing that happened. Uh, Hattie McDaniel won her Oscar and she didn't get a lot of speaking engagements, but she got one to come to Howard University in Washington, D.C., and they had a soiree for her, members of the faculty. And she was so touched that she said that she's going to uh, bequeath her Oscar statuette to Howard University. And she did. After she passed away, her Oscar was sent to Howard University. Many years later, someone went looking for that Oscar, mm. and it's no longer there. It was lost. There was a frantic search. It was written about in the past uh, five years in several newspapers and the headlines where Hattie McDaniel's Oscar is lost. It remains lost to this day. Uh, mm. And we don't know why. It's only speculation. Maybe somebody took it, or maybe somebody didn't think it should be at Howard, or maybe somebody didn't like that role in hindsight. But, and as you so well said, Terrence, Hattie McDaniel had to make a living, and she said, I would much rather play a maid than be, one. Than be a maid. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that says a lot about, about her character. Yeah. Uh, there's a terrific movie out right now called Passing, uh, yes. which I want to talk about, but I want to go back to the roots of that. Uh, Fanny Hurst, a Jewish writer, wrote a book called Imitation of Life. Yep. And uh, I, in the early film was with Claudette Colbert, and I forget who, uh, who played, it's probably a white woman playing the black, uh, playing the black girl. Uh, and then uh, Pinky with uh, quite beautiful but uh, untalented uh, Jeannie Crane. Uh, Jeannie Crane. This yeah. was, I guess, in uh, Ilya Kazan's light period. He was making light films like Gentleman's Agreement about anti-Semitism when right. Edwin Dimitrik was making Crossfire, which was a real uh, brutal film that took the subject on. Uh, and, uh, and then it was made later in the, um, in, in the 50s, as a, uh, once again, as a, as a very successful film with Lana Turner. Right. Um, the current film, uh, Passing, uh, written by a... Uh, a, a British uh, a woman of, of color, uh, or a, a, a mixed, I guess you would say, 
Um, and it, it talks about, it's written based on a book uh, that was written in the 1920s uh, about a woman uh, passing herself off as, as being white. Uh, it's something that we don't know much about today because it, uh, it well, we're not living in that, in that world. But to look at that film, I, I presume you've seen it. Yes. Yeah, it was a, a remarkable film. Just it as is. a as a piece of a, a piece of film and the nuance and the subtleties, the music, the black and white photography. Yeah. Talk about that and, and talk about the uh, the experience of passing that from people you know or people that you've researched. You know, it's interesting. Um, it is an interesting uh, phenomenon. You know, it's rooted somewhat in both. Uh, survival and a little bit of self-hatred. In in this country's racism was so, uh, you know, forceful, so... All pervasive. Yes, it was everywhere. That if some Blacks thought that if they were light of skin enough that they could say, live in Harlem, let's say, live in Black Harlem, get on the subway in the 30s, go into Midtown Manhattan and work as a secretary if they were so light and that they might look Hispanic, maybe, or or like a foreigner, maybe. I mean, they they would do whatever they could to not let anybody in that company know and that they were black. Mm -hmm. And so this novel that came out in 1929, written by Nella Larson, one of the wonderful Harlem Renaissance Mm -hmm. era writers, uh, it would have been nice if Hollywood had made a film of her novel back then, but Hollywood didn't. but they chose to make Fanny Hearst novel twice. <laughs> they made that novel twice. I think in 1959, it was already dated, but it was still brave for this fact. Hollywood did not make movies showing the inner turmoil of black family life. And so in this 1959 movie, you had a black maid played by uh, Juanita Moore. Yeah, wonderful actress. Uh, And uh, she was quite good. And I remember, Terrence, my mother, she always talked about that movie as one of her all-time favorite movies. Now, I was a kid when that movie came out in 59 and never saw it on the big screen, but I have two older sisters. They saw it, and they still cry to this day. Well, you know, it was also in the genre known as a woman's film. Yes. So it, it yep. kind of covered a covered an, another waterfront. But, the, you know, uh, what I was what passing, it was a little difficult in the beginning. The the the, uh, the Ethiopian actress, who's also in the film Loving. Uh, Ruth Mega. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, to, obviously, to me, she was black. 
uh, very, very light. So it took me a, a little while to adapt to that. Once I did, her performance was so extraordinary. Uh, yes. And it's, it's such a, a subtle and nuanced uh, film uh, that, uh, no, I just, I hardly recommend it. And I, I, it took me about five or ten minutes to get into it. The opening just took me a while for me to grasp it. Then when I got it, uh, it just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't turn my head away from the screen. It was just yes. so, so well done. Uh, and, and parenthetically, uh, Philip Roth wrote a book called The Human Stain uh, with Anthony yes. Hopkins, which also dealt with this subject. Only in this case it, was a man. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wentworth, Coleman, uh, Coleman Silk was the character's yes, name. Exactly. exactly. Wentworth yeah. Miller played that role. Uh, yeah. Yeah you, yeah, you are exactly right. Man, you've seen everything and you've read well, pretty it. Much, you know, I'm, I'm old, man. I'm old. <laughs> Whatever. You know, when you, grew up, when, when you grew up in New York, you have to understand that we had the Million Dollar Movie, the Late Show, the Late, Late, Late Show. I mean, I was watching movies till 3 o'clock in the morning when I was 8 and 9 years old. So, yeah. uh, you know, it was cheap programming for the, for the, for the local uh, stations, the independent yeah. stations. So yeah. we, we've yeah. seen a lot of it, you know, uh, yeah. and it's, it's always been a passion of mine. The, um, then we get, I guess, into this, uh, the, I would call the, the Belafonte, Poitier, Lorraine Hansberry period where uh, certain types of black actors began to have a, an opportunity. Uh, they were handsome. They were not threatening. Uh, you know, I'm just looking at it from contemporary perspectives, and they could begin to settle into some into some of these roles. Talking about those two guys, who pretty much, I guess, were the the backbone and the pillars that gave uh, blacks a uh, a stepping stone into Hollywood. Oh my goodness! There is a, a little section in that opens in this chapter. One paragraph, I, I want to know if you would like me to read it. Please, read it. please do. Just one paragraph, and the chapter is titled, Two Cool Cats <laughs> with Caribbean Roots Disrupt Hollywood. And here goes. Sidney Portier and Harry Belafonte altered both Hollywood and America, arriving on the scene like torpedoes gliding across New York stages into Las Vegas nightclubs, onto movie theater marquees, not to mention racing around Mississippi together during the darkest days of the civil rights movement trying to stay alive. Mm -hmm. A decade before their cagey 1960s crossover leap into mainstream white America had taken hold, it was unimaginable to think of two black men who could attain their influence and clout. Paul Robeson and James Baldwin, they were seen as too mercurial and far too honest about society. Joe Lewis and Sugar Ray Robinson, well, they were mired in a brutish sport that lessened the degree to which they were viewed as intellectuals. And but Portier and Belafonte stepped into another realm. They got Hollywood to make movies. They got producing jobs. They got black stories up on the screen, stories that have previously been ignored. They were summoned by White House officials for talks. And they also made white men jealous because of their looks and sex appeal. Little wonder that black America looked upon them as more than just actors. 
They judged the rise of Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte against the progress of the nation itself. Period. The, uh, so we were back to uh, you know Harry and um, Harry and Sidney and the huge impact they had on Hollywood in opening the gates. But then there, there was a, a little film called Shaft, Isaac Hayes yeah. and uh, the great cinema of. Uh, for still photographer Gordon Parks. Talk about that film and uh, that that moment that it kind of generated a, an enormous amount of acti activity in the black cinematic community. Yes. It was so new to see a black crime fighter on screen, okay? Mm -hmm. That was just very new. Gordon Parks had made a previous movie called The Learning Tree. Uh, it did not get much attention. A lovely family film, though. Mm -hmm. And so he read this little novel about uh, John Shaft, uh, who had a little detective agency in Harlem, and he wanted to make a movie. And he didn't know who to cast. And he came across this young male fashion model, Richard Roundtree, and he cast him in the role. Uh, and they filmed the movie in New York. Um, and they wanted a soundtrack to it. And so they hired Isaac Hayes, who made a thumping astonishing soundtrack. The Stax the, Records, I think. Stax Records, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, and it had these great lyrics. Oh, oh, Shaft. Who are you talking about? Oh, I'm just talking about Shaft. Do, 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 do. You know, it was just a whole rhythm section, thumping rhythm section. And it was a success. It was a big hit. Uh, they won Isaac Hayes an Oscar for musical score. Uh, it seemed to start something new in Hollywood. Uh, this was not a stereotypical role. This was a man who stood four square to the wind. He had some hipness, some style. He liked who he was. He was a black man. Uh, he commanded the screen and I remember going to see that when I was like 15 years old and, and I had just never seen anything like that. It was just such a cool movie, music and the fashions. And it was just, it was just so cool. Well, it crossed over too, cause you know, this was the yes. early seventies. So yeah. everyone was, uh, had long hair, jeans and uh, were super liberal and trying yeah. to stay out of Vietnam. Uh, so right. yeah, he was a, he was a cool dude. Uh, he was cool, dude. <laughs> kind of colorblind to him. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on as part of the Apollo, but uh, Rod Roger Corman uh, kind of discovered uh, Pam Greer and made her into a star, later picked up by uh, Tarantino. You know, uh, a powerful, yep. strong, strong woman. Um, yes. Yes. So many of these actors who were black, really had no mentors in a sense. I mean, they really had to find a way to carve their own road. 
into Hollywood. Uh, and you look at Pam Greer, and I mean, she came out of Denver, Colorado, and she had won a couple of beauty contests. I mean, not one, but, you know, in the first three finishers or so. She placed or showed, as we say in horse yeah. racing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and she had beauty, she had charm, she had wit. She's a very, very physical actress. In uh, the screen, loved her. I mean, she really held her own. And she started making these series of movies, Coffee and Foxy Brown and Sheba Baby, and they became hits. I mean, uh, but it didn't help her get roles in mainstream movies. Hollywood still ignored her, uh, which was which was sad. And then Quentin Tarantino, as you said, 20, 22 years, 25 years after her heyday, he cast her in a wonderful movie, Jackie Brown. Uh, and I thought she was just, just super in that movie. And, and, and it really brought a smile to a lot of people's faces who thought in the Pam Greer was unsung um, uh, and should have been given more credit in Hollywood. And so that movie really, it really was like a valentine to her career. I want to talk a little bit, a little bit about Roots and Spike Lee, but I, I don't want to uh, ignore Barry Gordy's efforts uh, looking at uh, Mahogany and the, uh, the title of the Billie Holiday story with uh, Diana Ross and Billy D. Williams. And yeah, yeah, refresh yeah. me on the title. I've seen both films. Uh, Lady Sings, Lady the, sings blues. the Blues. Yeah. Lady, Lady Day. Blues. Yeah, because yeah. uh, Billy, uh, his first film was, uh, oh, God, it, uh, it wasn't The Last Hurrah. It was the, the last, no, it wasn't The Last, The Last Angry Man, I believe, with uh, uh, Lu, uh, Luther Adler and uh, Paul Muni playing a doctor in Brooklyn. And he was in a, a small role, right? A small role, yeah. That was yeah, his, yeah. that was his first role, and then he he was later described as well. He had the the, the great TV uh, thing with uh, Brian Piccolo and uh, Jimmy Kahn with the beautiful score by Michelle Legrand, uh, and that but it did much more for uh, for uh, Jimmy Kahn's career than it did for Billy Dee's career, and then he just kind of I guess he, he petered out, you know. Uh, as hot as he was at that time, it was very difficult to sustain it. He was very hot. I mean, and you're right. He became a star. He was Emmy nominated for playing Gail Sayers in Brian's uh, song. Um, but his career was very frustrating because Hollywood was scared of race, so they were afraid to put him in an interracial romance. Uh, and so that never happened. Uh, um, there would be scripts written and showing him and somebody else falling in love who happened to be white, and it would the script would rise up the steps inside of the studio. And when it got to the top, it would be squashed. Uh, 
which was saying he was upset that his career seemed to to have stalled because of that. But he found a mentor, which was rare. And that was Barry Gordy in the Motown Genius. Barry Gordy wanted to start making movies because he wanted Diana Ross to become a film star. And so there you had, you know, the first kind of pairing of a big romantic couple on the big screen, Billy D. Williams and Diana Ross. And they did two movies together. Mm -hmm. Mahogany came right after Lady Sings the Blues. But those were two movies I remember in my neighborhood when I was growing up, those movies, and they were everything. We had just never had a true couple uh, with that kind of charisma and flair on the big screen. I mean, they were in magazines, Essence, Ebony. They were in Jet magazines. I'm sure they were in Vogue. It was a total crossover. You know, Diana yeah. achieved so much stardom as part of the Supremes. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, and you know, we, we white people like uh, liked, uh, Lady Day. Lady I, grew, Day. I grew up with yeah. jazz in, you know, in New York. So, yeah. you know, we're very, very conscious of, uh, of jazz musicians and blues singers and... Uh, so that already there was a built-in story with that whole the whole backstory of her life. Um, and, it's, it's, and you're so right, Terrence, because speaking of music, speaking of jazz, there was a script floating around, and Billy D. Williams wanted to play Scott Joplin on the big on the big screen, but Hollywood said no, and he took it to TV. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, yeah. Uh, U. B. Blake was the guy that kind of rode his, not rode his coattails much later in life when he did the. Yeah. he was playing for the for the Sting and that whole that whole stride whole, piano and everything became very very important. But yeah, right. it, a lot of opportunities that went by the boards. I want uh, we don't have that much more time. You and I could talk forever, but yeah. uh, you know, January nineteen seventy seven. It's freezing cold in America, even in Marin County, California, where I lived, and and Roots David Walpers. Eight consecutive days of that show, which every day got a, a bigger and bigger share of, of the pie and uh, pretty much encouraged the entire world to go back, and, or the American world, if you will, go back and look at their roots in, uh, you know, in Russia, in Poland, in Africa, Italy, wherever, uh, and provided uh, so many roles for so many black actors. So talk about Alex Haley's book and just how, how important that was. Yeah, um, Haley has spent, you know, goodness, 10 years, you know, he has spent 10 to 12 years researching the slave trade and how his family was brought over to this country uh, by slave owners. And um, he wrote for various magazines here in the country uh, he had achieved some fame because he was the co-author of Malcolm X's autobiography. Uh, and so he got some money. He was able to do some more traveling. He interviewed George Lincoln Rockwell for Playboy also. Yes, yes, he did. Yes, he did. Uh, 
And that book came out, and it was just a smash. An immediate New York Times uh, bestseller, uh, Hollywood rushed in to buy the rights. They were going to make a big screen movie, but once again, they got nervous. Haley had to buy back the rights to his own book because he said that the people who made weren't really serious about uh, his novel, well, his nonfiction book. Anyway, he bought back the rights and took it to David Wolper and he turned it into a miniseries and it stopped this country almost in its tracks. White people had rarely, if ever, if ever talked about slavery and the pain of slavery. Uh, and this really was the first time that was, a, you know, it was a cinematic uh, wallop. Uh, I mean, folks write a, wrote about it in all the mainstream magazines, Time and Newsweek and The Atlantic and all the newspapers wrote about it. James Baldwin wrote about it. Uh, white and black writers all wrote about this sensational miniseries. I remember sitting in my home in Columbus, Ohio, with my grandfather, who came from Selma, Alabama. Now, his grandfather was a slave. My grandfather's grandfather was a slave. And so he sat there in heartbreaking silence. Uh, he couldn't watch every episode of it, uh, but he watched some of it. Uh, um, and it was, it was really very painful for his grandchildren who lived with him uh, to watch him uh, watch that on the screen. But for relive, us, relive all those experiences. Yes, we had to relive all of that, all, all of the Jim Crow laws and the segregation that he had, he had grown up with. Uh, and uh, it just became a great, great, moment for this country to talk about race. Now, did that translate into those actresses like Leslie Uggams and Lou Gossett and, and, and John Amos? Did that translate into them getting big screen roles? Usually, if you have that type of an impact in a miniseries, if you were a white actor or actress, you were going to get big screen roles, but that didn't happen for the black actors and actresses in Roots. And that was sad, too. I want to go, I, I mentioned Spike, and we could talk about him, but uh, I, I forgot to mention that that badass dude, Melvin Van Peoples. Yeah. But it wasn't passing himself off as being Dutch, as Van, his middle name was V-A-N right. with a capital. <laughs> Man, I have a friend here uh, uh, who was a journalist uh, with the Herald Tribune and, and who's 94 years old, and I, we recently, uh, Melvin had just died, and I did a little piece on him, and she contributed, you know, that he was just, he was so much fun. He was yeah. such a cool guy. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I mean, yeah, he, yeah, he was amazing. He, he you know, yeah, he really showed. Has somebody written that biography yet, or do you have a little time? Pardon me? 
Has someone written that biography? Oh, no. Man, he was a cinematic character for sure. God. I, yes. I'm sure someone, yeah. Yeah, the three-day pass about a black soldier in, in, in Paris and his relationship with a white woman. And yeah. I mean, all of those, they, you know, uh, they're just, just remarkable and uh, should be seen again. So I want to jump ahead to Spike before we, uh, we finish our conversation. Uh, Shelton Lee from Atlanta yeah. uh, reinvented himself as a Knicks fan. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> talk about his impact on, uh, on filmmaking in general and uh, filmmaking uh, as a, a role model for, uh, for young black directors. Yeah. Spike Lee really... Uh, is one of the many, many heroes in this book. Uh, you know, to be a filmmaker, Terrence, as you certainly know, you really have to be driven. I mean, I don't care what racial heritage you are. It's just hard to knock down the doors in Hollywood. It just is. Uh, and I think Spike Lee knew it was going to be harder for him. And so... Uh, he goes to graduate school, and what is his thesis about? It is about the birth of a nation. Uh, he takes down that movie in his own creative way for his, uh, for his thesis. Uh, but Spike Lee makes some short films after college. Then he makes a little movie called She's Gotta Have It. Uh, and it's kind of... Uh, it's a picture about a woman uh, who owns her own sexual uh, identity, uh, and it becomes a hit. It plays in a lot of a lot of art theaters around the country, and it plays overseas, and it becomes a hit. And he's somebody to watch. Uh, but Spike also, and you know, this is sort of a theme in that courses through this book. Even while it's a book about movies, it's never far from the streets. It's never far from what's going on in this country. In spite, when he started out as a filmmaker, kept his eye on the streets, kept his eye on the, uh, on the uh, hypocrisy that we see far too often with the justice justice system here in this country. The injustice system, I would call it. Right, right, exactly. He, he kept his eye on that, and he was fearless about it. Now, some filmmakers say, ah, no, I don't want to get too political because it might hurt my career. But not Spike Lee, just the opposite. He went just the opposite. He talked about what was going on in the country and also made art, you know, artful, stunning, Movies, you know, he came out with provocative movies. Yeah, very provocative movies that you couldn't just leave that movie and change the subject after you were out on the streets. You'd want to talk about his movies for the next two or three days. Jeez. Well, you look at you look at a film like Do the Right Thing and Danny Ayala. Yeah, I mean, there, you have a certain amount of sympathy for this guy. Uh, yeah. In spite of his racial attitudes and the fact that, you know, that uh, Spike could make make a film and show those broad strokes and not uh, not make it so dogmatic and, and pointed that you would You're see right. both sides of that character. Right. Uh, you know, made it a much richer film. It made it a much richer film. I think. Yeah, as opposed to a polemic. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's his genius. 
Yeah. Before we sign off, I do want to quickly mention a filmmaker that I like very much. He made a film called One False Move using an all-white cast. And then he did uh, Roger Mosley, uh, uh, Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress, which I loved yeah. with that yeah, yeah. amazing performance by uh, Don Cheadle, who had uh, just I mean, been making picket fences as right, a little right. attorney in that uh, hick town in the Midwest. And uh, that I, I, I just, I, I, can I say that it, it felt like, you know, this was Central Avenue, at least to what I imagine it to be. I can't, I can't claim to have any experience uh, as a black man in, in Watts, but uh, it, it felt very real to me. Yes, yeah. it did. I mean, the, the yes. jazz, the bars, the uh, mm -hmm. and the dress, and the, yeah, just the whole thing. It was, uh, it was a great score, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it's, it's, it was a great film. I, I liked yeah. it even more than the book. Uh, yeah, you know, and the uh, I, I think Carl is uh, has a uh, relatively successful career making uh, making TV films or working on episodic television, which brings me, I guess, to my. My final question, uh, with the, the advent of Netflix and Amazon and HBO and the fact that Hollywood only makes, you know, Marvel superhero kind of movies, mm -hmm. it's rare they'll make anything that has any, any texture to it, uh, yeah. and all those films are being made on television. Uh, how do, where do you see, what is the state of black filmmaking today, and, and how do you see uh, television addressing or accepting that issue? Yes, I... I really think that things are going to get much better because of the streaming services, Apple, Hulu, Showtime, Netflix. They seem to be willing to take more risk than the Hollywood studios. I mean, my God, how many Star Treks can we take? How many Star Wars can we take? I mean, well, you so know, it's, it's like feeding the ball to O.J. Simpson. You, you do it, yeah, as yeah. John McKay said, until he can't any longer. As long yeah. as it's making money, they're going to make that garbage. It's, yeah. It's, you know, they're really not in the uh, in the movie business or in the in the old as was in the old days. They're in the money business. It's just a, it's a product. And, and, and yes, and I think it's sad. I think when a movie with some texture, uh, like King Richard, the new Will Smith movie, when that sneaks onto the screen, it's such a surprise. Sure. I mean, I think that the small screens are really going to start to welcome filmmakers from all, all backgrounds, especially black filmmakers, because these people do need content. They do need to fill it up. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, Spike Lee showed the way. He took his last movie uh, uh, the five bloods uh, that came out from a streaming service, Netflix. Mm -hmm. I think. I mean, you know. He, yeah, there's no doubt that that's where we're going, and I, I certainly hope we see yeah. more. You know, a film like uh, Passing, which I, I happen to watch uh, on, uh, I watch it on Netflix. Uh, yeah, yeah. But there are a lot of films that won't get theatrical play, and the the future of theatrical cinema is very much in doubt. You know, as we as we know it. Well, this, is, this has been fabulous. Uh, it's, uh, we have uh, much more that we can talk about. We just don't have the time to do it today. Uh, but once again, uh, the, the book is Colorization. The author is Will Haygood. And uh, very best of luck on this and continued, uh, continued success. It has been an honor, and uh, uh, thank you very much for your Thank knowledge. you so much. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at terrence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.